Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. This season on SageCast, we'll be talking to current and former Pomona faculty about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. Today, we're talking with Assistant Professor of Psychological Science, Sarah Masland, whose research involves personality disorders, and in particular, what's known as borderline personality disorder. Hi, Sarah. So welcome to Social Distancing SageCast. <laughs> it's good <laughs> to have you. you with us, but not really with us. <laughs> yes, it's, it's good to see people, uh, even yeah. if it's via Zoom. So thank you for having me. <laughs> um, so let's start with how you first got interested in psychology. Uh, can you trace it back to any particular point in your life? So I anticipated that you would ask me about this, and I've been thinking about it. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that, you know, so I didn't actually know that psychology was really a field, something that you studied until college. Um, and I actually went to college thinking that I would major in chemistry or biology. And I just never took a chemistry class at college. And so I went to a small liberal arts college, a lot like Pomona. I went to Bowdoin College. And what got me interested in psychology was actually, I think, an amazing professor. So I had this professor uh, my sophomore year. I took personality psychology with her, my first psychology class. And that's actually a class that I teach now. And I just love the material. I love the way that she taught it. Uh, she was hilarious and engaging. And she really made me think. And Sometimes I wonder, actually, is, you know, if she had been an English professor and I had stumbled into her class, would I be an English professor now? Yeah, I mean, isn't it? I mean, it's so often the case, you know, I mean, you, right. the, the, what really sets you off is somebody who is passionate about something and, and, you know, you catch it. Exactly, exactly. And so this professor is actually someone that I still am in contact with. So when I'm back in Maine, I'm actually from Maine. So I, I'm there occasionally. We have lunch. Uh, she's retired now. Uh, it's really nice to, to keep up with her. And I think that having her as a professor was not only formative for me in terms of my field of study, but I think it's also probably why I am a professor. I think that my time at Bowdoin College was so formative for me as a first generation college student that I... I never wanted to leave. <laughs> and so I joke <laughs> that I set myself up so that I never had to leave. Uh, Pomona is a lot like Bowdoin in a lot of ways, a lot different in some ways too. Uh, well, but I feel professors like... professors are. I mean, they're, they're professional students, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and I feel very comfortable in that role. Um, but, you know, I think... Sorry. Can we pause for a second? My cat just actually attacked sure. me. Sure. Um, <laughs> no, actually, like, I left that in. Your cat attacked you. Yeah, well, I mean, really? you're, you're welcome to keep it in. My cat was no, not there's a story. Life. For some reason, she hates when I talk on Zoom, so she gets very agitated. And um, um, yeah. you're not paying attention to her. <laughs> but I can pick up the thread. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I've been, I told you that I've been thinking about my response to this question, and I, I started to think back about before college. Um, and I grew up in a family where we never talked about mental health. And I think part of that was that we certainly didn't have access to mental health care. Um, it wasn't something that was on the radar at all. So it wasn't something that I was thinking about professionally, certainly. But I think that in many ways, I had an opportunity to observe people just generally. Uh, so I grew up in Maine and um, 
there wasn't always a whole lot to do, <laughs> except maybe <laughs> um, observe what people were doing and actually observe what animals were doing too. Uh, and the siblings that I grew up with were eight and 10 years older than me. So I kind of uh, was always interested, I think, in what they were doing and, and how they were thinking and, and how they were working. So maybe there's some origins of my interest in how humans think and, and uh, tick um, earlier on, but it really was about my college experience, I think. So walk us through, Sarah, a little bit of how so you found your kind of interest in psychology or, or and were introduced to psychology. Didn't even know that it existed as a, an academic field. Um, walk us through your, how did you find your way to Pomona? Oh, so I told you that I went to Bowdoin College and that was really formative for me. And, you know, I think that I realized pretty early on that if I could, do something like teach at a place like that, that it would be really meaningful for me. I think that it, it had been so meaningful for me to have the opportunity to receive that kind of education uh, that I realized that the ability to contribute to that for other students would be something that, that would be really good uh, for me. And so I majored in psychology at Bowdoin. And uh, at the time, uh, the way that the psychology department was structured there, there weren't a whole lot of research opportunities. And I'll say just kind of as an aside, that's part of why I really care now about getting students involved in research opportunities at Pomona. Uh, so I knew that I actually needed more research experience if I was going to continue on uh, to get a PhD in psychology. And so I applied to research assistant positions, and uh, the one that I got was working in Boston on treat on a treatment uh, a, a team that studies uh, treatments for kids with depression and anxiety. And one of the fun things was that I was working in Boston, but actually one of the studies we were doing we were working with kids in the child welfare population in Maine. So I was assessing kids over the phone from my home state, and and that was really neat and learning a lot more about uh, the treatment scene for kids and adolescents. And so I started graduate school actually working uh, in that area. So again, studying the development of treatments uh, for depression and anxiety. And uh, at some point, you know, I realized that the treatment research wasn't really what was as exciting to me. Uh, certainly as a clinical psychologist, uh, I care a lot about treatment research and treatment development. But I started to become interested in uh, family dynamics that, the, that I had heard the kids reporting about over the phone or talking about over the phone that I'd talked with the parents about. And so I started to study this contract, construct called expressed emotion, which is a measure of the family environment that picks up on basically how warm, hostile, and critical uh, family members are to one another. And it's it turns out that those things matter a whole lot for mental health, both for kids and adults. And so I started to study that. And in my second year of graduate school, I switched labs. So I switched into a lab uh, with the advisor that I had when I finished, uh, Dr. Jill Hooley, um, who was another person who was incredibly formative, I think, in my decision to do what I do. Uh, and she studied expressed emotion, but she studied an array of other things in adults. And I became interested then in borderline personality disorder, both because she was studying it, but because at that point I had started my clinical placements. So when you do a PhD in clinical psychology, you're doing a lot of research, but you're also doing clinical placements because you're learning to be a psychologist. And one of my experiences was uh, working in um, 
a residential unit uh, for women with borderline personality disorder. So they were there for a minimum of eight weeks and it was an intensive treatment program. And it was that clinical experience that got me really interested in the research on BPD. And I guess the rest is history. Uh, but I will say also that I'm realizing as I talk about these things that uh, I have a lot of people to thank. So I told you about my professor, Professor Held uh, at Bowdoin, who was really formative for me. And then my advisor uh, in graduate school, uh, Jill Hooley, was really uh, uh, formative for me. And then my uh, supervisor at the Gunderson residence, that residential treatment program, Lois Choikane, was also an amazing uh, mentor for me. Uh, these are three really strong women who uh, really influenced who I am today and, and what I do. Uh, and I'm really thankful, actually, that I still get to talk with them all uh, and work with them, actually, on collaborations, too. Um, let's talk about uh, the word personality. I, I'm interested in how a psychologist defines that, that word and, and why do we see certain types of personalities as disordered? Hmm. Those are tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think that a, a good kind of general definition for personality is um, the characteristic patterns of thought, emotion, and behavior that we bring to different situations. So how are you the same uh, on this call? Uh, and uh, maybe when you um, are interacting with someone at the bank, right? So what are the patterns that we bring across those different contexts? Uh, also recognizing that those contexts will change a little bit how we act, um, regardless of what is stable across those. Um, and so we think about this in terms of uh, behavior pretty easily, right? Because it's what we can see. So how people are acting uh, might be kind of consistent across situations. But the same is true also for emotions and thoughts. So it might be that some people are more prone to um, feel some aggression uh, in, in across contexts or anxiety across contexts, or to have thoughts about um, how they're understanding the context that contribute to those emotions across um, those situations. So, and that's pretty broad. Um, there's lots of theories of personality. I think that that is one that is pretty atheoretical for the most part, uh, but I'm sure someone out there would disagree with me. Um, <laughs> and, <I'm sure>. and, <laughs> uh, and then in terms of disorder personality, I think this is also an area where there's some controversy, but I think that the, the easiest way to think about it is that sometimes those characteristic patterns of thought, emotion, and behavior might cause us problems. So if we have a, a characteristic pattern where we do kind of interpret things with like a hostile attribution bias, right? So um, when someone kind of cuts in front of me on the, on the highway, I immediately think um, they're trying to make me angry, right? Uh, rather than, oh, they were just not paying attention. Right. And then maybe I uh, react aggressively with a good degree of road rage. Right. Um, if I'm doing that consistently, that probably will eventually cause me some difficulties. Um, so we can start to think about this as, as when those patterns cause problems. Another way that we can think about this is that those patterns usually cause problems when we have certain personality traits that are magnified or uh, really significant for us. So uh, 
the biggest trait model of psychology uh, right now is the five-factor model, which suggests that when we think about our personalities, we can really think about these five traits as summarizing um, all of the human variation um, across those patterns. And those are neuroticism, extroversion, openness to experience, conscientiousness, and, neuro and agreeableness. I already said neuroticism. So those five traits, and there's uh, facets within those, so more specific kinds of traits under each of those umbrellas. Uh, the idea is that if you're really high on neuroticism or really low on neuroticism, maybe that causes problems for you, um, or really high on conscientiousness, um, that might cause you problems similar to being really low on conscientiousness. That's a simplified account, and I will say. Uh, it's not always extreme um, trait manifestation that causes the problems, but that's one way to understand it. Sarah, you um, have a particular focus in recent years on borderline personality disorder, or BPD. Um, can you tell us what it is and what attracted you to it? Sure. So borderline personality disorder is characterized by a pattern of instability across a number of different domains. So when we think about emotion, we see people with rapidly shifting emotions um, over the course of even like a, a minute to an hour. Um, and uh, usually those rapidly shifting emotions might go from kind of feeling okay to maybe feeling really angry um, or potentially despairing. And what typically causes that shift is something uh, in the interpersonal context. So maybe something, someone says something to you that makes you feel like they're rejecting you, for example, and that might cause a shift in emotion. We also see instability in behavior where there's a lot of impulsive behavior. So things like reckless driving or shoplifting or value discordant, uh, uh, unsafe sex practices, things like that. Uh, we also see instability in identity. So people uh, with BPD will have a lot of difficulty um, kind of uh, building a cohesive sense of self, who they are. Uh, sometimes they'll feel like uh, they're all evil and there's a lot of kind of um, self-loathing that goes along with that too. Um, and then there's also instability in interpersonal relationships where people with BPD will go from kind of idealizing other people, thinking they're all great, to uh, the opposite, so devaluing them, thinking that they're all bad. Uh, and I became interested in BPD really through my clinical work. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm not currently practicing right now, although I am licensed uh, in California, and I will probably practice again. It's one of the things on my list maybe to start up during my uh, steel leave sabbatical uh, this coming year. Uh, but so I had a clinical experience where I was working with people with BPD and I really became interested in understanding how to better help them. And rather than approach that from the treatment perspective, I started to think about um, kind of how they were processing information. And then also I started to get interested in why there wasn't more research on BPD. Uh, if we look at uh, the dollars that are spent on research for things like depression or schizophrenia, there there's ex it's just the disparity here is 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 really significant. Uh, BPD is just so understudied relative to those disorders, despite the fact that there is a really high level of uh, significant rate of suicide in people with BPD. So it is something that we really need to understand. Um, and I think that just knowing that it was something that needed more research kind of attracted me um, to that area too. But mostly it was actually just working with people that I really cared about um, and wanted to be able to help better. Um, 
So how do you go about studying something like BPD, and why is it understudied? Hmm. So one reason that it's understudied has to do with how we have classified disorders historically. So in the United States, we use this manual called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And internationally, actually, the, the World Health Organization uses a different manual. So this is something that's put out just in the United States. And for years and years, personality disorders, there's 10 in the DSM right now, they were relegated to kind of a, a secondary status. They were put um, in a different section of the DSM with the idea that they were not treatable and that they were things that just happened in the background uh, when you were treating someone for something else. So you should be aware of them, but they're not the central focus of treatment because they're not treatable. The idea that they're not treatable is totally wrong. Um, I think the problem is actually that no one was trying to treat them appropriately. And so we learned first that BPD was treatable actually when Marsha Linehan out of the University of Washington developed a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy. Uh, and that revolutionized our understanding of treating uh, personality disorders. Uh, I will also note that Marsha Linehan disclosed in 2011 that she has borderline personality disorder. So um, it's a really cool story, actually. Um, and uh, the field is really indebted to her for her work on that. And since then, uh, you know, we've started to, to think about treating other personality disorders as well, but we are really lagging behind. Um, and it's really about the uh, legacy of this classification system and just a completely wrong, you know, belief uh, that we had about personality disorders and really a stigmatizing one, too, honestly. Um, yeah. So does the, does the stigma attached to it also tie into why it wasn't studied? I mean, is it, I mean, how do clinicians feel about people who have BPD? I think the stigma is a reality here. Uh, so this is actually something that I, I studied directly as well, is um, kind of how we might think about um, mitigating the stigma that still exists. So BPD is, a, is, I would argue, the most highly stigmatized mental health condition amongst mental health clinicians. Um, and it really does come from this misunderstanding that it's untreatable. It also comes from the original use of the term borderline, um, which is, it's a term that, it, uh, that originated in kind of psychoanalytic, psychodynamic systems of thought. And the idea was that uh, the disorder exists at the borderline of psychosis and neurosis. And that's well and fine. That's not really how we think about BPD now. Um, but the problem is that when the term first came into use, it wasn't articulated really well. And so it started to get used in a way that didn't really make any sense or have a coherent um, kind of uh, reasoning behind it. And actually for years, it was just applied to people who were difficult to work with. Um, I'll put difficult in scare quotes. So um, clinicians would actually apply this as a literal stigma to people that they didn't want to work with. And some of those people probably have what we now call borderline personality disorder, but many didn't. It was just a term um, that was used to mark people, really. And that changed actually in the 1980s. Uh, when John Gunderson, um, another really fantastic mentor of mine, um, who passed away earlier, uh, who passed away uh, just recently, um, 
uh, about a year ago now, a little over a year, uh, he actually formally articulated the disorder with a set of criteria. And so then we had, you know, a definition for what it was. And so that started to change, but we're still seeing the legacy of that, that history. And so clinicians still have um, some of these beliefs about BPD. Um, and I also think because we don't have enough research and understanding about the behaviors in BPD, that clinicians don't themselves always fully understand um, why people are acting the way that they are. Um, and without understanding, uh, that's where stigma loves to uh, propagate. So. so how is this disorder normally treated? And, and it seems like it's constantly evolving because it's understudied and then and, and there's um, adding research to it, but obviously still lagging. How is it normally treated and how have you seen an evolution since you've studied these years? So what's often referred to as the gold standard treatment for BPD is dialectical behavior therapy or DBT. And this is the one that Marshall Linehan developed. This is a treatment that uses cognitive behavioral techniques and also um, some blends in mindfulness and meditation um, and some of those practices as well. And it actually works with people across four domains. So interpersonal effectiveness, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, and mindfulness. And it's an intensive treatment uh, where you have both individual therapy and group therapy. And you're working uh, with the individual therapist to change behavioral patterns. Uh, and you're working in group therapy actually to develop skills to help with things like emotion regulation, um, to help with um, the things that actually uh, might breed some of that instability that we see in, in BPD. Now, in terms of what has changed since I started working with people with BPD is that uh, we've seen other treatments gain a lot of evidence as well. So in addition to DBT now, there's a whole slew of other kind of alphabet soup, basically all the other treatments, MBT, uh, TFP, GPM, uh, CAT, like, you know, you could just list all these silly acronyms. Um, but the idea is actually that now there's other treatments that also seem to be effective. And one thing that I've been involved with is uh, this initiative to develop and disseminate uh, good psychiatric management. Um, so I'm a trainer for this particular treatment. And the idea here is uh, behind GPM is that we need to be able to get treatment to more people. So if we look at the number of people who have BPD in the United States, and we look at the number of people who are trained in dialectical behavior therapy, we see that there's a really big problem. The vast majority of people with this disorder do not have access to DBT. And that's in part because uh, DBT is expensive actually for the clinician to get trained in and intensive. It takes a long time to learn DBT. So GPM was actually developed as something that uh, we could uh, implement more easily um, so to increase access for underserved populations. And uh, the training is free. And so it's been disseminated now all around uh, the United States and also um, uh, all around the world at this point, too. So I think there's been trainings in the Dominican Republic, um, in um, Italy and Sweden and Greece, um, I believe maybe Brazil. Um, but there, you know, it, the idea is just that um, we need pared down treatments that so we can get to more people. As a clinician, you've said um, you actually like working with people with 
uh, borderline personality disorder more than than some other types of clients. Uh, why is that? It's a good question. Uh, it's when you're training as a clinical psychologist, it takes some time to kind of find where you feel like you're most effective, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I, I really enjoy working with people, um, not just with BPD. So I also, uh, have specialized in treating people with PTSD. Um, and also I really enjoy treating people with obsessive compulsive disorder and other anxiety disorders. Um, and the common thread actually across all of these is that I take a pretty behavioral approach. So thinking about things like exposure treatment um, and thinking about the things that help us change our behaviors, I find that when I take that approach, I feel most effective. And I think that's actually a piece of it. It's just that that type of approach probably clicks with something in me, too. I think it's what I would seek out in treatment. Um, and so that's part of it. Now, in terms of working with people with BPD specifically, I think that um, sometimes uh, people with BPD, uh, when I've been working with them, they always keep me on my toes. Um, sometimes, you know, there's a good amount of kind of anger um, present in BPD that one of the criteria, criteria is um, inappropriate expressions of anger. And certainly that's something that comes through in the therapy room. And for some reason, something about my personality, maybe, um, I can handle that. Um, that's something that feels like um, it gives me some traction to work with someone that I can really lean into. Um, I have a harder time with kind of maybe a different presentation. So um, I still treat people with uh, mood disorders. So things like depression, and certainly a lot of people with BPD have depression too. Um, but for some reason, I, there's something about the energy of working with someone with a, with maybe a more angry presentation that works really well for me. Um, and just, uh, you know, as an, as an aside that I think that, um, one thing I reflect on sometimes too, is that sometimes that the, the angry presentation comes through in this like really fun kind of snarkiness, um, like a good amount, like a really like fun humor, uh, style of humor that, I, that I really enjoy actually. Um, so. <laughs> what are some of the lessons and or understandings that you hope clinicians take from your work on BPD? Hmm. So I want clinicians um, to understand that how they talk about BPD matters. Um, so that I think sometimes there's this pernicious kind of um, clinical locker room kind of icky talk that happens where um, people throw the term borderline around in a pejorative way. And I think that a lot of those people are actually really well-meaning and it, if they actually care about the people um, that they're working with, it, it's not that they um, really have truly like negative ideas about, about their clients and sometimes they're venting, but I still want them to understand that that kind of language and talk actually perpetuates stigma that we know from research makes uh, care less effective, that we know makes people less likely to seek treatment, that we know makes clinicians less likely to accept clients with BPD. So I want people to actually pause and think about how they're, they're talking about these things. I also really want clinicians to know that, um, to take from my work that we do have treatments for BPD that are effective and they can learn them and they can feel confident applying them. I think one thing that uh, contributes to stigma sometimes is feeling like you're not effective. 
um, and, and worrying that you don't have um, the capability to help someone. I think that tends to kind of um, cause you to put someone at, uh, at a distance rather than kind of um, seek to draw them in and understand. And I want clinicians to know that they that they can learn the tools. Um, and when they do learn the tools, that I think that they will find um, themselves uh, really helpful and effective for people with BPD. That they they can they can make a real difference. Um, Sarah, you've argued uh, in something I read that. Clinicians need to move beyond the old diagnostic categories to a more empirical approach. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Uh, so there's a lot of controversy right now about how we classify personality disorders. So we have 10 categories within the DSM. And these are categories um, like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, um, there's uh, schizoid and schizotypal personality disorders, antisocial personality disorders, so on and so forth. All of these categories have lists of criteria that vary in the degree to which they are based on good, solid science. Um, so there's been a push to revisit the criteria, but also to revisit this idea that personality disorders are separate from normal personality in some way. So right now, if you read the list of criteria, it doesn't look like, the criteria don't look like how we understand personality. So I told you there's these five traits that we understand personality through often, for example, neuroticism, extroversion, so on and so forth. Those words are not in the descriptions of these personality disorders. You see um, symptoms that don't really look like personality. Um, and so there's been this push to better understand how personality disorders might be manifestations of these normal personality traits um, and to understand uh, them through that lens instead. And so this would actually revolutionize things because not only does it suggest that um, there's not just clear categories, you have a disorder or you don't, uh, but it also suggests that uh, personality disorders are are really akin to normal personality, which I think is something that will be destigmatizing too, because if we can think about these things through the lens of how we understand everyone, then that's a little bit less othering. Like you have this other category of things, which is what we say now. And so, so, it's, the, like, so it's a matter of degree rather than of difference. Exactly. So it, it's about quantity rather than kind. Um, exactly. Uh, yeah. And so there is a new model actually now within the DSM. So, uh, there's a, a an alternative model for personality disorders, uh, that will probably, I think, become the main model someday. Um, and it is focused more on these normal personality traits. Sarah, let's talk about your lab, about your research lab. So you call your lab the mind lab. Tell us about why you chose your why you chose that name, and and tell us a bit a bit about your lab and your um, research assistants. So I didn't actually choose that name. I had my students choose that name. I I knew when I came to Pomona, I wanted a lab name. Uh, some people just like use their last name, so it would be like the Maslin Lab. But I wanted it to be more descriptive, so I started to think about the words to include in the lab. Um, so personality, psychopathology, relationships. 
Um, I thought maybe I could combine those to be like the pepper lab. And I tried that out and it wasn't really working. And then I tried to reorganize the letters and I came up with things like the perp lab, which was not going to work at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> purple, I tried purple for a while. Um, that didn't really seem to work. So finally, I was just like, you know what? I, I asked my students, think about what might be a good name for our lab. Think about all these words and, and how, you, how you could combine them. And they came up with the MIND Lab. Uh, and you have to be a little bit liberal with how you apply the acronym because some of the letters get dropped out and some get magnified. But it's the Mental Health and Individual Differences Lab. And I, I like that name a lot because uh, we study mental health uh, pretty broadly. So I'm focused on personality disorders, but I'm interested in other disorders too. And individual differences, which is a, basically kind of another name for the study of personality. Uh, so I think that it's a nice kind of broad uh, lab name that doesn't really limit our focus. Um, and I'm really happy that students came up with it too. I mean, you, you said earlier that you're, your students are really integral to your research. Um, tell us about them and, and you know, tell us about the work they're doing. Sure. Uh, so right now I have um, a number of students in the lab. Uh, the student that I've uh, has been in the lab longest is uh, Kaylee. And so she came into the lab basically the day that I landed at Pomona, she was in contact with me um, wanting to get involved. And so uh, she was really integral actually to starting up the lab and to thinking about how um, the research program uh, would uh, start and progress at Pomona. And so she's a senior now um, and she actually is, uh, she'll be starting a research pos uh, assistant position uh, at McLean Hospital Harvard Medical School in June. Uh, so really excited for her for that. And I think that she'll go on to uh, a PhD in clinical psychology, which is great. Um, but she's been involved in lots of different projects. So she did a summer undergraduate research uh, 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 program position, a SERP, uh, where she stayed on campus and helped me with some work on stigma and BPD. Uh, and we're currently working to develop that into a manuscript on which, you know, she'll be a co-author. Uh, she has been involved in some collaborations with me with folks at McLean Hospital and also at Harvard, um, where she's been involved in working on some um, other manuscripts with me. And right now she's working on a really fantastic thesis. So last summer she did another SERP. And the beauty about SERP is that uh, you can use SERP funding to work both in labs at Pomona, but you can also use it to work in labs outside of Pomona. And so she went to work with a collaborator of mine at Yale Medical School. And she was working there on a ketamine trial for people with BPD. And so they were looking at the effect of um, ketamine on BPD symptoms and suicidality, which is really cool work. And so she took some data back from that lab and she brought the, you know, she continued the collaboration and she's uh, looking to apply a computational model right now to some of the data to help improve our prediction of suicidality. So really complex work, really um, important work, um, and really exciting work too. Um, so I'm really proud of her. And uh, I think that she, that that's just kind of an example. She exemplifies all of the things that I want students to do in my lab. So I want them to get involved with research projects from the get-go and see them through. I want them to go out and get other research experiences. And I want them to participate in these collaborations in ways that are beneficial for them, but that also help me with my collaborations. 
the beauty of Pomona students is that I can trust them to do that. So I, I don't worry when I send them out to work with collaborators. Um, I know that the collaborators will love them. <laughs> um, that's just uniformly been the case. Um, I have an, there's another student who graduated, Evan, who um, has been working with a collaborator of mine at McLean in a full-time research position for a couple of years. And my collaborator there, who I mentioned before, actually a previous supervisor of mine, Lois Choikane, she raves about him. She loves having him there. She wants more Pomona students. It's really lovely. Um, and I, yeah, I have other students in my lab right now too, Tanya, Janelle, Chloe, Ananya, and they're all doing similar fantastic things. Uh, I love working with them. You mentioned that Kaylee joined your lab or started kind of when you started. Um, so how you don't have to have a background in psychology. Tell us a little bit about the background or experience that you're, you're looking for in a research assistant. So now I have a requirement for the lab uh, that students have taken either um, psychological disorders, which at many colleges is called abnormal psychology or personality psychology. And I have that requirement in part because I get a lot of inquiries um, for the lab and I just can't, I can't take everyone in. It would dilute the mentorship experience too much, I think. Um, I also have that requirement because, um, you know, we're working um, oftentimes with people who are struggling. And I think it's important that students have some background um, in understanding that um, before they come into the lab. Um, although sometimes I make exceptions. <laughs> um, I didn't have that requirement actually when I first started the lab because I was just kind of eager to, to hit the ground running and accept whoever was interested. Um, but fortunately, uh, Kaylee actually, when she joined the lab, she was uh, concurrently enrolled in my class, Psychological Disorders. Um, so she was getting that information there too. Um, I And like I said, I do sometimes make exceptions um, because sometimes a student will come to me so excited about the work and so clearly ready to learn and, and to be thoughtful um, that I just can't turn them away. Can you tell us a little bit about the classes you're teaching this spring? So this spring, I am doing something a little bit different. I'm teaching a class on personality disorders, actually. I'm teaching a, it's a seminar class. Uh, so there's eight students. And this is a class actually that I taught a couple of times at Bates College, but in a different format. So it was a larger class then, a uh, smaller class now. So we can get into a little bit more depth um, and it's been really fun. And then the other class that I'm teaching is our senior thesis seminar. So every student in, in psych science at Pomona completes a year long empirical thesis, which means that they're working with data. So they're seeing a project through from start to finish. And the senior thesis seminar is meant to be uh, a chance to provide them support in doing that um, and also to encourage community in doing that because science is hard and uh, science is a team sport for sure. And so uh, it, it's a chance for everyone to get together and, and problem solve and, and collaborate um, and support one another. And so that's been, it's been nice actually. Um, my favorite part of that is that I know all of the seniors now in the department, um, which is, uh, will make it all the more kind of um, bittersweet when they're gone, but I, I'm glad to know them. Re related to that, um, how are you and your students coping to the move of online teaching? So far, I have been really impressed with how flexible my students have been. 
um, it's hard, I think, to the transition. I think that the, the transition to online teaching actually maybe isn't even the hardest part of it. I think it's just the, the transition to, to being at home when you're expecting to be on campus and all of the anxieties um, that we all have right now. I think that those are, are the things that make all of this maybe the most difficult. Uh, but fortunately, you know, the switch to online teaching, I don't, I, I think it's gone pretty smoothly. Um, I used to teach online classes through Harvard Extension School, so I wasn't too worried about the switch. Although to take something that was really designed for in-person and to move it online creates its own set of challenges. Uh, but I, I think that it's going well. And actually, I'm really grateful for the technology that we have now um, to be able to see my students um, and to interact with them in a way that feels semi, semi-normal, at least. Um, so, you know, I can't imagine what this would have been like, been like before things like Zoom. Um, but. So as a clinician, do you have any advice for listeners out there who are, who are struggling with um, some of those same anxieties and, and difficulties of staying home and, and being separated from loved ones and so on? Hmm. I think the, maybe the main point of advice um, and this is something that I've said to my students too, is, is to be gentle to yourself, to recognize that this is an unprecedented time for us and that things will be different and, and that that's okay. And when I say that that's okay, I mean that it's okay if there are times when you're having difficulty focusing and it's okay to react to this in a way that you need to react to this, to process your emotions around this. Um, generally I'm someone who, uh, I really like, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is this treatment that's kind of about embracing all of our emotional experiences, um, and still moving in the direction of our values and our goals. And I think that this is a time when we do need to pause and kind of allow ourselves to feel, um, and at the same time keep moving forward. And that's a, that's a tough balance. Um, but I think the key is actually being gentle to yourself and kind of not, um, beating yourself up for having reactions to all of this. So on that encouraging note, um, we're going to wrap this up. Uh, we've been talking with Sarah Masland, uh, assistant professor of psychological science. Thanks, Sarah. This was fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. And to all who stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Stay safe and until next time.